What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Alex Piper, head of Unscripted for YouTube Originals. He's a good man. He's a good man, that Alex Piper. He was good enough to join me on a Friday afternoon. Uh, before we got you know, into recording, we talked about you know, having two girls and schools, and we live in the same neighborhood. It was nice. It was nice. It was a nice conversation. There was a lot of ground we could have covered that we didn't even get into. He's had some fantastic stops working at NBC Sports for years, training and being mentored under Steve Michaels and Jonathan Koch at Asylum before going on to his first major buyer job at Fox, where he spent five years. And then the opening came at YouTube, and that is where Alex finds himself today at one of the leaders in the future of content. It was a fun conversation. We talked about sports, talked about 30 for 30s, talked about the most unexpected credit on his IMDb page. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but you can't see it, obviously, because this is audio. But I can tell you, when I brought up this credit on his IMDb, Alex got super flustered and turned bright red. It was fantastic. You're not going to expect it. Here is my sit down with Alex Piper. I hope you enjoy it. Dude, I'm glad I'm catching you and we're doing this on a Friday. Amazing. Thank you for making it a Friday. The very do, you have, do you have anything to do after this? Or are you done? No, I have to watch some stuff and catch up on, on some emails and everything. But in terms of meetings, uh, Google is, is really great about trying to take some of our Fridays and make them what they call focus Fridays, where we take some of our meetings off the books and allow you to get caught up on different things and focus on new initiatives and all of that. And so this is a focus Friday. So I'm a little light on the meetings. Most of my meetings were in the morning. I have the afternoon free to catch up. So it's great. I'm glad I like that. This I'm in like, I'm in like weekend mode, Alex Piper here. This is good. This is <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Hey, I'm wearing a hoodie. Like I'm ready to go. This is perfect for my, for my needs. I also love that like five <laughs> seconds into the show, you already gave a, a Google commercial. You're such a company man now. Of course. I mean, why am I here otherwise? I don't understand. No, dude, this is great, man. Because I'm you live from my Google Pixel phone, if that helps out. Are you doing this on the phone? No. Okay, I don't know. I don't. I actually, I'm doing it on a Pixel book because when I when I first got hired at Google, this is a little bit of a tangent. When I first got hired at Google, they send you this this list, and they go pick which computer you want. And it was like MacBook this, MacBook that, or Google Pixel book, and then next to it, it said recommended. And I was like, well, I work at Google now. Maybe I should just, you know, be a company man. So I got the Pixel book and I showed up at work the first day and every single person at YouTube Originals had a MacBook. And I'm like, why do I have a Pixel book? Why am I the sucker who like took their recommendations? But now I still have it and it works great. I don't know why that reminds me of when I went to like my first major conference and I was at an after party after hours away from the conference and I still had my lanyard on because I just, <laughs> I was just so happy. To, I was so happy to be there. And Chris Albrecht was like, Dude, why are you still wearing your lanyard? You're at a bar, and like, and that was like, just the senior. Oh, we've all done that. The senior punk oh, freshman. That. Yeah. Amazing. Bro, so where did you grow up? I don't know. I don't know the backstory. I grew up in Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, you know, my mom was uh, a nurse who kind of ended up moving her way up until she ended up being like chief chief nursing officer and chief operating officer of a local hospital in Philadelphia. My father was an accountant. 
Okay. who did the same thing, kind of moved his way up in healthcare and ended up being the chief financial officer of uh, one of the larger hospitals here in Philadelphia. And they met, obviously, doing those jobs. Um, and I was the last of five kids. Uh, my, oh, you're the baby my, my too. Mom, I'm the baby. Yeah. My mom defined a career based on like, could you find it in the classifieds? Right. And I, you know, up until the day she died, I, I never think she understood what on earth I did for a living because all my brothers and sisters have, you know, real jobs. So you had that experience every Thanksgiving when you came home. For- oh, and it didn't matter. Like we were I was winning Emmys and having them shipped home to my dad. And it still didn't matter. I remember the very first time I shipped one home to him. I got a phone call and I knew that it had arrived because I had gotten some some email or whatever that said it had arrived. And this was. You know, I was I was pretty young at the time. I hadn't even turned 30. And I had it sent to his house. So he op- he's like, hey, I got a big box for you. What do you want me to do with it? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, open it. And so he opens it up. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of wrapping in here. And I'm like, you know, he's just complaining the whole time. And then he pulls it out and he goes, what the hell is this? And I'm like, it's an Emmy, dad. And he's just like, what? For me? And I'm like, no, it's mine. You see my name on it? And he's just like, what do you want me to do with it? And I'm like, well, I want you to like recognize that I want it. Like for a second, like take a second that your son has won an Emmy. And he's like, Letty, he's like calling my mom. And, and she's like, wait a minute, are we supposed to ship it to you? And I'm like, no, just enjoy it. Like, just put it on the mantle, you know? And then a, we, I had won a couple and I had sent them all to them and they were sitting on the mantle. And then I remember one, I think it was Thanksgiving. My mom came up to me and said, Hey, can I talk to you for a second? And I said, sure. And she said, listen, um, take this the right way, but can you take your Emmys with you when you go back? And I'm like, what? And she's like, I don't know. I just think they make your brothers and sisters feel uncomfortable. I was like, oh, okay, no problem. I like get a box and like throw them in the box. That you know was That's a good mom though, you know? I, I guess, I guess. She, I can tell you some other stories that would. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of sibling <laughs> rivalry there. I mean, I always, I always noticed with my, my grandmother, she always placed my brother's graduation, like senior portrait in a much more prominent position than mine. <laughs> <laughs> on, on her mantle. And I would test her. I would literally move them when I came over to visit. And then she would flip them back. Yes. The next time I came over, my brother was there front and center, center stage. Amazing. And Jimmy was like hiding behind a Kleenex box. Like, like, <laughs> like last time. She knew, because she knew Jimmy that you didn't need it. And he oh, is that what it is? Yeah, exactly. That's what my mom would say. What was the major break for you? Were you, were you a broadcasting major? Well, it's, it's how, how far back do you want me to go? I don't know how long these podcasts normally go, but. Well, you, you've got such a long career and so many stops I'm excited to get into. Let's not go too long a, on like the college of it all, but. Yeah, you know, it's a weird thing. Because so when I was in middle school, if you can believe it, eighth grade at the school that I went to, we had this thing called the eighth grade observation project. Basically it was career day. Spend a day with somebody in a career you're interested in. So I ended up spending a day with the local sports reporter uh, in Philadelphia at one of the local affiliates and not even the lead sports reporter, like the second guy, like the guy they would send out into the field. And why? Because I wanted to go to the baseball game that night. I didn't have any interest in TV. I just wanted to do this and go to the baseball game. And so I, I wrote to this guy who like did all of his live shots from the baseball game. And I was like, when he said, yes, I was like, awesome. I get to go to the Phillies game tonight. What was it? What was his so, name? Do you remember? Yuki Washington for channel three in Philadelphia. And he, Yuki, you know, so Yuki I, Washington. You, Yuki, U-K-E-E, Washington. I, I knew he'd and, have a great local sports name. By the way, he's still there, still at the same, <laughs> same uh, network. It's amazing. So anyway, I spent the day with him. And as I was spending the day with him, there were these other guys who seemed to be doing the majority of the work, 
right? They were writing the scripts, they were putting the graphics together, they were editing the pieces, they were putting the scoreboards up, like they were doing everything. And at some point I'm like, who are these guys? And he was like, oh, there's, those are the producers. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I was a sports nerd at the time. And I'm like, wait a minute. So you can be a part of this and you don't have to be on camera holding a microphone, like doing a standup. And it was like a revelation to me mm. because it was like, now all of a sudden I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Mm. So when I left that career day, I sent them a letter. And of course it wasn't an email back then. It was a letter. And you would just send a letter and you would hope to get a letter back. Like it, it, the whole thing was just so crazy. And the sports director, Tom Stathakis there, sent me a letter back. And he said, because in my letter, I had said, I'd really love to do an internship there, which was a word I think my parents told me like, oh, if you want to work there, ask for an internship. Right. So he wrote me back and he was like, uh, we only do internships for college credit, but you know, stay in touch. And I was too young and stupid to know that was him blowing me off. Right. So what did I do? I stayed in touch. I would send him letters. Hey, I love the piece last night on this athlete. I like this. I like that. Like, and I just was like bombarding this poor guy with letters. And then eventually he wrote me back and he said, all right, I'll tell you what. Not many people are here on the weekends. Why don't you come on Sundays? We do this show called Sports Wrap after 1130 News, and you can help us out with that. We'll sneak you in. We can't get you like a key card or anything, but we'll kind of sneak you in. And so I started going there before I could Wait, even what, drive. What, what, what grade is this? So you, you have that career day in eight, eighth grade. When when does this yeah, this is come? This is the summer between ninth and 10th grade. So it, basically a year and three months had gone by. So you're not, even, dri just, you're not even driving yet. Not even driving yet. My my dad would would drive me there, and then he would pick me up after sports rap was done at like midnight. Oh my god! It was insane. And then I started going on Saturdays and Sundays, right? And then I, once I started being able to drive, so I'd work at a sporting goods store like all day to make money, and then I would go to the the station, and I was working Saturdays and Sundays, and. When you're there long enough, everyone just starts to know who you are. So I didn't need a key card anymore because the security guard knew me. I was in. They would let me edit pieces. I would be the field producer. Like at the NFL draft, I'd go to New York in the in the in the live truck and stuff like that. And I was like doing it. And I was convinced, Jimmy, that I was just going to go to school for broadcast journalism. And then I was going to come back and work at that station for the rest of my life. And that I, that was like my dream come true if that scenario would have happened. So I went to like my guidance counselor and said like, what are the best schools for broadcast journalism? And they mentioned a school that my sister had gone to and a couple of the producers at this station had gone to Syracuse. And I was like, great, I'm gonna go to Syracuse. I, my sister went there, like, I'm gonna go there. And my mom was like, well, you know, you might be able to get into like better schools. Like, and I was like, no, this is what I wanna do. I was so but, sure that was what I wanted to do. But Syracuse like very highly regarded? For, 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 for communications, yes. For okay. other disciplines, maybe not as much as what my mom, my mom went to Penn and okay. she like wanted everyone to go to an Ivy League school. You know what okay, I'm saying? So you, or something okay, so around you, Philadelphia. Okay. So you came, okay, got it. So it's good to know through that lens. You came from that kind of family. You came from an Ivy League. Yeah, family. totally. Okay. Yeah. And by the way, I was not great in school, but in her mind, she could like make it happen for me. So anyway, I went to Syracuse and I took some of the communications classes like COM 107 and TRF 245, all the basic classes, but I really didn't like it. Why? Because we were learning in books and I had been doing it. Like in my mind, I had been doing it. So I ended up not be staying in the communication school at all. I ended up going over and becoming a sociology major. I graduated with a concentration in urban sociology. I still worked at the 
college television station while I was there. And I still did internships when I would come back to Philadelphia at places like the KYW or Lou Rita Productions or the Philadelphia Eagles. I worked at all of them. Um, but when I graduated, I wasn't exactly sure whether I was going to go into communications or I was going to go to graduate school for sociology. Like I hadn't really made my mind up. I ended up out of the inability to make a decision, I ended up moving to Boston with two of my friends hmm. who were going back to Syracuse, one of them for his for graduate school and one of them for his fifth year because he was an architecture major. And I was just basically planning to goof off with them all summer in Boston. And then one of the, the production company that I worked for, Lou Rita Productions, which was run out of the basement of a furniture wholesale <laughs> plant. And that's what it was, right? Lou Rita owned this huge furniture company, but he loved like old movie tone film reels. And so he started this, he would buy them all up and then he hired somebody to start making them into shows. So he was doing shows for the History Channel and the Military Channel. And he had this guy, Sammy Jackson, who was executive producer of all of those shows. And Sammy called me up one day and said, I'm doing this two hour special for the History Channel called Doomsday Flu, the 1918 outbreak of influenza. Mm. And we're going to use all this historical footage and we're going to in do interviews, but we're also going to do like 13 days of reenactments. And you, anybody else would have just been like, yes, absolutely. Where do I sign up? But I'm like, I don't know. I'm having fun here in Boston. Like, I don't know. Like, I literally was like such a such a jerk. And. He comes, he calls me back a week later and he goes, listen, I can give you uh, $600 under the table and you can have whatever title you want. I'm executive producer, but any other title you want, you can have. I don't care. Just come be my right hand man. We'll work on this together. Is that a week? I was like, what was that? 600 a week, 600 a week. Yeah, that's right. So I was like, this is pretty good uh, under the table. This is a lot, you know, I was barely making ends meet in Boston, right? Just doing some like day job. And so I moved back to Philadelphia and I started working on this special and I would live on a cot in this basement of this furniture place because we were just working. It was just the two of us doing this entire special. And that rolled into this next thing that we did with him, which was like a A&E biography of Robert E. Lee. And while we were shooting it, we were like doing the reenactment on the Gettysburg battlefield. And the DP, this guy, Gino Bruno, said to me, like, we were totally hammered, three o'clock in the morning, living out of a Winnebago. And he turns to me and he goes, Piper, what are you going to do next? And I had never even thought about it. I, I didn't even right. understand what he was doing. What do you mean next? Like, I just you thought this thing rolls into the next job. You didn't like, know, like, the freelance life at that point. You had no idea. No, not at all. Like, I, I just, I had done the two-hour History Channel doc, which, by the way, I was co-executive producer and first <laughs> assistant director on at age 21. And then I was now on this Robert E. Lee A&E biography. And I'm like, I don't understand what next means. Like, I just think we're going to do another one after this, right? And he was like, no, man. Like, you got to find a job. So he said to me, I live in DC and I know this woman who runs a production company down there. She, she doesn't have a job probably, but she knows everybody in town. So if you ever have any interest in DC and I had a friend who lived there. So I was like, okay. So I drove down to DC after the job was done. And I met with this woman, Rosemary Reed at double R productions in Washington, DC that did primarily like political uh, ads and public service announcements and things like that. And she offered me a job at six fifty a week. Okay. I was like, well, shit, I just got a raise. Like, 
here we go. So I lived in DC and worked at Double R Productions. Uh, and it was one of those jobs I always tell everybody that if you showed up five minutes before Rosemary and you left five minutes after she left, you were going to have it forever. Like she just thought you were working hard. Right. And so I remember one day she came out into the bullpen and she was like, does anyone hear like rap music? And I'm like, I, I mean, I, I kind of like rap music. And she was like, great. You're the producer of Rap City Japan. Rap City Japan? The, yeah, the B- so they the had B- gotten a license. They had gotten a license deal to produce Rap City Japan for BET. Um, oh they were farming. They did some, they did, you know, the main Rap City in-house, but then they had farmed out Rap City, some of the international versions, and we were doing Rap City Japan. <laughs> so here we were. She, I was now the producer of Rap City Japan. I was 22 or whatever. We would go to Brooklyn or Philly or, you know, different cities to shoot these wraparounds. And the host, Mommy, spoke Japanese, but we didn't have enough money in the budget to have a translator. So all I would do is just like tell her, you have to hit a certain time on a stopwatch. And if you hit that time, we're we're good. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, I had no idea what she was saying. I was just trusting her. Like, if she just got it under 26 seconds, like, we're gold. And I would plug into the show. Did your editors have any idea what she was saying? No one. No one on our production team (laughs) other than her knew what she was saying. So this stuff is getting cut and sent to air in, in Japan. And nobody making it actually knows what your host is saying. So it could be like propaganda in, in between rap videos. And you guys wouldn't have known the difference. 100%. And I, we would slap it all together. We'd get the, the episode of time. I would drive it over to BET. I'd walk in, hand somebody a tape, and that was it. And, and I was like, just yeah, like, this will work. Yeah. I, I mean, they weren't watching. I'm sure they thought we were checking it. I, I don't know. So we would do that. So that was like one of the things I would do. And then I would do some of these public service announcements or whatever. But you know, I was there for about six months and I realized like I probably had a bigger appetite than that job was giving me in terms of the stuff that I wanted to do. And I, I ended up talking to my father one day and he said, well, who's doing what you want to be doing? Yep. And it was yep. probably like the most valuable question anyone had asked me up to that point in my life. That's, I was like, hmm, that's interesting. That's literally the same. That's the same advice someone once gave me that like changed everything for me. They literally said, find the one person in town that has the career you want and go work for them. That was, that was Isn't the amazing? line that changed, changed my life. It, how, uh, how powerful is just that one question? Like it just changes your entire POV. And, you know, back then this was 1998, 1999. So it's not like you could just Google who was doing what you wanted to do. No, you, you know had what to ask I'm saying? You had, to ask around. you had to ask around or you had to watch the credits of shows that you liked and try to pull names from these credits. So I was, as I said earlier, I was kind of a sports nerd, but you know, in the cliched way of, I, I love sports, but I also love storytelling. Right. And so what was the great uh, Venn diagram of those two things was the Olympics. And so there was this show on CNBC called the Olympic show. And it was just basically showing Olympic features. And at the end of the show, it said executive producer, Lisa Lacks. And I'm like, okay, Lisa Lax is who I'm going to write a letter to. So just like I did with Tom Stathakis, however many years before, here I write a cold letter to Lisa Lax. I do not know her. I know no one who knows her. Like I'm not like connected in the industry through my parents or any, like nobody. I just send her a cold letter and she makes the same mistake that Tom did, which is she writes me back. Right. And she writes back and goes, thank you for sending your letter. You sound so passionate. I appreciate that. We don't have anything, but what does she say? Stay in touch. Yep. Right. Well, of course, now that's exactly what I do yet again. You're like, so you're, like go, you're like Andy, you're like Andy Dufresne and Shawshank Redemption. She's like, now I'm going to, now I'm going to write five letters a week. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So 
when I would ever, when I ever I'd be on location for a shoot, Winchester, Tennessee, Lima, Ohio, like wherever the hell I was, I would get a postcard and I would send it to her from there. And because I wanted her to think that I was like out, like doing stuff, like I was important because really I was just a punk kid, you know, I didn't know anything. So eventually about, I think about two, three months had gone by and she, she called me and she said, I'm sorry. Yeah. She called me and she said, are you still interested? Yes, of course. She goes, all right, well, you're going to get a call from David Michaels. He's one of the senior producers on the Olympics. He's looking for somebody to join his team go meet with him and let's see what happens. David Michaels. So, I, I see where this is going. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you, you're, you can connect the dots. Yeah. So David had was like a legend in the Olympic scene, right? Yeah. And he was the most senior kind of story person on the NBC Olympic side of this equation, right? And um, he lived in Los Angeles. And so he was out in New York for some meetings and I drove up to New York to meet him. And I like put my best self forward. I mean, I really thought I had done a good job. I was with him for hours and him and his future producer, Kathy Farrell. And we were just talking and I thought like, I nailed it. I got in my car and like was already counting the checks I was about to cash. But, but, but you know, what's interesting about that time in your life is when you're in your early twenties, you're fresh out of college, you know, you're, you're really on your first stint of work and you have that big interview, that big meeting, what you don't know at the time but it's clear later when you look back on it is nobody expects you to know anything in that meeting. Like they're not, they're not hiring you because they actually like want your, your input or expertise. They're hiring you just, if you're going to do the job that you're given and work hard and are fun to be around and seem bright. Like if you just seem like you can learn, if you just seem like you're a good learner, that's all they want. But in the moment, like when you're young twenties and you're prepping for these meetings, you're like, Oh, I've got to study up on this. And I got to show them my knowledge of this, this. And like, no, that's not, that's, that's right. It's, it's actually worse. It's actually yeah, it's worse, worse because you come off so inauthentic because you're trying to act like, you know, everything when they know you don't. Right. And so it's, it's it, here, of course, you're, you're forcing it when all they, to your point, all they really want to know is, can I hang out with this person? Is this person going to work their ass off and listen to what I asked them to do? Like, that's all they really that's care right. about. So I go back, I drive back to Washington. I get a call the next day or two days later saying, we've decided to go a different way. Crushing. And I was like, Crushed. what? Like, I couldn't believe it. And now I was feeling like, oh my God, I'm going to be stuck in this job in DC for the rest of my life. Like, you don't have any perspective that there could be another job that comes along. I'm thinking this is the only job or else I have to stay here. You're like, um, shit, I'm going to have to learn Japanese. <laughs> so I'm going to get caught for this Rap City Japan thing at some right. point. So I, three weeks, I think went by and I got a call from Kathy Farrell, um, later of we, if anybody uh, who's listening knows Kathy. And she said, again, are you still interested? And I said, I thought you gave the job to somebody else. And she goes, we did, but it's not working out. Oh. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm interested. And she's like, well, when can you start? I was like, I don't know. I'd like to give two weeks notice. And she's like, great. I'll see you in two weeks. Amazing. And that was it. And so I moved up to New York. A couple of my friends already lived up there. It was like, you know, three of us living in a two bedroom, like how it normally is, right? Uh, sharing the bedrooms and stuff like that. And I now worked at NBC Olympics in New York at 30 Rock. I was going to say, and it was at 30 Rock? Yeah. yeah. You want to yeah. talk about the, the New York television experience. Like all of a sudden, young Alex Piper going to 30 Rock. That's the best. Yeah, taking the F train up to 30 Rock and walking out and being like, what What the hell happened? It's like it, it was... You, I remember like sending my my parents an email from my, you know, 
like alex.piper at nbc.com email address, like feeling like I had made it, like this was it. And of course they still didn't care, but like in my mind, like I had a business card with a peacock on it. Like I had hit it. But how could they, were those company issued business cards or did you hustle and get your own? No, no, no. Company issue. Company issue. So let's, let's talk about the Olympics. So was the first one you had got the travel for uh, like 2000? What was the first? Yes, Sydney. Sydney was the first Olympics that I worked on. So the, the interesting thing about working in the Olympics department with David was that David was really an NBC sports producer who also did the Olympics. Right. And so you were working on, because I was part of his team, I was working on every event he would work on. So yes, we were doing Olympic profiles, um, mainly around gymnastics, which is the biggest venue at the summer Olympics. And that's the one he oversaw, but you were also doing the triple crown of horse racing and the breeders cup and, an action sports festival called the gravity games and, and, and all like of Olympic, the little like, gymnastics events and like Olympic trials. Were you guys covering and Olympic trials and national championships and all of those things. And right. he also oversaw figure skating. So if there's a figure skating event that year, you would also work on that. So you were kind of spending every weekend or every couple of weeks, like in a trailer, in a parking lot, in the city where the event was editing little features that were going to air in the show that week, you know, with the aluminum foil over the windows, you know, saying, Oh, I'm in Louisville, but really you're just in the parking lot of Churchill Downs. Like you're not having any experience other than that. So that was basically what I did. And then eventually you do the you know the national championships into the Olympic trials, and then you go to Sydney and you're there for however many weeks. So how many Olympics are we talking about that you, you toured? I ended up doing four. Uh, so Sydney, Salt Lake, Athens, and Torino. So two winter, two summer. I was a full-time employee, uh, through the first two. And then for the second two, I was kind of freelancing there at some point along the way, I had realized that I could leave NBC and David was still going to hire me back and I could triple my salary and I could also do other projects. So at some point I got smart to it. Um, but you know, an amazing team of, of people at NBC Olympics, like so many of the people who are still working in the sports world and even in the entertainment world, like this is where they started, you know, they ended up going to HBO and to ESPN and to a couple different places. But I mean, just really, really amazingly talented people that I got to learn from for a long time. And some of the people are still there, like Mark Levy, you know, these are just like home run hitters when it comes to storytelling. And so, you know, I don't think I knew at the time just how lucky I was that Lisa called me back. You know what I'm saying? Because to be able to work with them was just opening me up to a completely different experience than everybody else was getting. Well, that, but like, if that other person doesn't, you know, shit the bed, you you don't, you don't get the call. I owe that dude something. Yeah. I owe that dude something. Absolutely. So you said that's about six years at NBC sports is four. Yeah. So I was, I was full-time there from what 99 through the end of Salt Lake city. So midway through 2002, Okay. And then continued to kind of freelance there through the, through 2006. Okay. So, so but at that point, in about 2002, I started working at other places. Got it. Okay. So you're starting to get like the freelance life and you're starting to venture exactly. out of sports. And at that point, you know, 05, 06, like the reality TV boom is upon us now in, in cable and mm-hmm. people are just ordering a ton of shows. History Channel is booming. MTV has already been booming, right? So this is like yeah. now, like the time you wanted to get into this business, you were there. 
you nailed it. But the truth is, is I didn't have any of that perspective at the time. Right. You know, when I when I stopped working at NBC, I was still working primarily on sports projects. So instead right. of just doing these small sports features for NBC Olympics and sports, I was now doing long form sports docs for um, Steve Michaels at then Red Skies Entertainment. Uh, he had a commission, he and Frank Sinton had teamed up and, and had a commission on Beyond the Glory for Fox Sports. And so I was doing some of these Beyond the Glories. David had done a couple and I had kind of been his number two on them. And then I had met Steve and Steve then gave me the opportunity along with Frank to do a couple so of my own. So just spoofing the listener. So David Michaels. David got it. Michaels and Al Michaels are brothers. brothers. They're the brothers. And Steve is Al's son. Right. So David connected me with Steve. Steve, you know, was one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet um, and gave me a great opportunity to do long form, even though I had never really done it before. Um, Steve, and so I was. Steve's one of the all time characters in our business. Oh, so man. I need yes. you. One of the things I had in my notes was you need to walk me through your first meeting with Steve Michaels. Oh, my God. Well, it's funny because I've known Steve now for. I guess almost 20 years. Um, and crazy. the Steve that, that I knew back in 2002 was a completely different dude than the, than the guy I know now. Right. He oh, was still, you know, he's, he was young and hungry and he was brash and he was trying to build his own business um, and get out of like being Al Michael's son, you know, mm -hmm. or being uh, David Michael's nephew. Right. But um, that's hard. Right. Those are some pretty big, shoes that you're following in. And so here he was building a business, which eventually became Asylum, but wasn't Asylum at the time. He's trying to sell shows. He's trying to figure out his way. Um, and he was he was still young. I mean, we were in our 20s at this point. You know, Steve's not, I can't even believe I'm saying this because Steve will get a smile on his face if he ever hears it, but Steve's not that much older than I am. Is that um, true? I didn't, know, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, I like to think of Steve as really old, but he's actually, you know, maybe only like four or five years older than I am. I think he probably says that he's less. I have no idea. But um, he also consistently reminds me that even though he's older, he's got much better hair than I do. So like whatever he wins at the end of the day. But yeah, he was he was still so hungry to try and make this. And I was so impressed by that because here was a guy who you imagine had this amazing like kind of safety net of like even if your career falls apart you know, dad and uncle can probably hook you up with something. Right. But he didn't want any of that. He wanted to make it himself. And he was, he was such a hard worker and a kind soul. So he would, he would say crazy things. I mean, like literally things would come out of his mouth. You'd be like, Oh my God, I can't believe he just said that in a pitch meeting. I can't believe he just said that on a conference call. Like, I can't even believe he just said that to me at lunch, just the two of us. Like there was crazy shit that he would say, but what was really clear from the beginning was that you weren't going to meet many people who had a bigger heart than he did. And I think where it, it, the game changed for him was when he met up with Jonathan Koch mm -hmm. and Jonathan came in and it really became asylum. And for a while it was Frank and Jonathan and Steve. And then eventually Frank went over to a Smith, but you know, Jonathan really unlocked the entertainment part of this world uh -huh. um, for Steve. And I, I think they were so Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of each other that it was a perfect combination. I know you've worked with a lot of people like this too. Like you, you don't want two people at the head of a business who are the same, right? They need to complement each other. And they really, really did. And, and I was lucky enough to be along for a little but, bit of that ride. But talk to me about that. So if Steve was a little bit more of the razzle dazzle and, and kind of the, the bull in the China shop sometimes just in terms of his energy and his spirit, how was, how was Jonathan the flip side of the coin in, in terms of how he handled himself? Well, I think Steve was the bull in the China shop. He was, he wanted to get things done and he was, you know, really 
aggressive. And Jonathan was more nuanced, right? Jonathan, the one thing he was all about was the relationship. He was going to build every single relationship he had in the business brick by brick, right? And so he wanted to be able that when, when you picked up the phone and spoke to him, you trusted him. You trusted that that project that he was pitching you was legit and that he was going to make it great. And, and, and you could go to him for almost anything. And so there was a certain kind of softness um, and openness to Jonathan. Mm. And Steve kind of put himself off as like tough and hard. And the, the thing is, is, I actually think that when you peel back the onion on both of them, they're the opposite, right? Jonathan huh. was soft and he's very kind, but Jonathan can be a tough negotiator. There's no yeah. doubt about that, right? Yeah. So when you when you set Jonathan off, he can really lean into something. Steve was putting himself out there as really tough, really you know hard and big negotiator and media mogul type, but he was really this kind-hearted guy. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that there was just a really great balance. I've been in many meetings with them where they you know, they disagreed or they agreed, but they always showed so much respect for each other, right? And they knew that they weren't going to be able to achieve what they wanted without the other one. And I, I thought that was such a magical thing to be able to watch. Well, you, 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 you know, are at this company on the ground floor and this company mm-hmm. asylum just skyrockets again. Like we're talking that the heyday of reality sales. I mean, I, I went on your IMDb yesterday prepping for this there were so many shows there, like so many asylum shows there. And I was like, oh my God, yes. The, this is that classic era of shows that just like don't get made anymore. Unlike oh A&E and History Channel and we and all these other yeah. places you guys were making shows, you know, different formats, doc series, uh, sports. Obviously you guys had great success later into Asylum's run with the scripted fair that Jonathan was really spearheading. Um, yeah. But 30 for 30s, which like, of yeah. course, like, I'm going to geek out on and also (laughs) being Mike Tyson. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And conspiracy theory with Jesse Ventura. Like these were the things that (laughs) jumped out at me as I was prepping. Yeah. But but Alex, let me tell you what jumped out at me the most. Oh God. I'm going through these credits yesterday Mm -hmm. and I'm looking at like these 30 for 30s. I'm like, Oh yeah, I've got to talk about 30 for 30. Like Jordan rides the bus Trojan war King's ransom, which is about Wayne Gretzky. Like these are awesome 30 for 30s that, you know, Alex EP'd. But I noticed something on your credits, like at the very bottom, you know, it says self, you know, where you're like, oh you, you appear, yeah, as, your, you appear mm-hmm. as yourself mm-hmm. in a show. And I'm yeah, like, yeah. what? I'm like, oh, what, what kind of like appearances has he done? And I click. And again, conspiracy theory with Jesse Ventura pops up and it says <laughs> self investigator. And oh, I'm like, yeah. what the hell did I just walk yeah. into? You were, yeah. you were on camera talent in the Jesse Ventura show. Thank you for basically ruining my life. So now you're bringing this up. So many people, including most of the people that I work with now, don't know anything about this. So hopefully no one listens to this podcast. But yes, it's funny. Conspiracy theory wasn't even an asylum show. Um, Oh, wasn't? No, no. So I had, you know, I had been doing the the Beyond the Glories for for Asylum. And then um, I ended up, they ended up selling some pilots to like TLC as you can see, I'm trying to get away from this conversation. But they had, they had sold some pilots to TLC and we, and they didn't really have any showrunners to run it on the entertainment side. So they were like, do you want to run it? Frank Sinton, I remember, came up to me one day, like, would you like to run this TLC special? And I was like, I guess it's kind of got to be the same thing, right? So I was now all of a sudden an entertainment showrunner, like just like that. I didn't even know what that meant. Uh, I was just looking for some kind of work to fill in the gap. 
And Frank was now over at a Smith and they were about to do the pilot for conspiracy theory with Jesse Ventura. And it was about 9-11, right? Because Jesse, of course, had a theory that all this other shady shit happened around 9-11 and they were shooting in New York. So they had called me to ask me whether I wanted to produce the pilot, right? They were going to edit it in LA, but did I want to come in and produce it? So I was looking to fill some a gap in kind of my schedule. So yeah, it was great. I, you know, I love working with Frank and hadn't had an opportunity to work at, with Arthur before. So I was like, great, this is awesome. The first day we shot with Jesse at ground zero. I mean, we were right wow. there, like day one, let's go shoot. And what I realized was when he was speaking down the barrel of the lens, which is what the design of the show was at that time, he would get into wrestling mode and he would start sounding like a wrestling announcer. And it was like, whoa, this is like a little too much. And when you would just sit with him at the table at craft services to eat lunch, totally different guy. So smart, so thoughtful, like really gregarious. Like, and I was like, these are two completely different people. So I remember calling back to Frank in LA and saying, I'm going to try something. Are you open to me trying to shoot these things two ways? One is we'll do the down the barrel of the lens because that's what you guys are expecting it to be. But for the pilot, what if we just had a couple of our production team be people he can talk to? Because when he's talking to us, he's so much more compelling in my mind. So you're, so you're breaking the wall. Your idea was to bring someone and have him talk to production, right? Okay. Completely, right? Okay. So we never really said, oh, this is the producer of the show. We just made it seem like we were on Jesse's team. Okay. Whatever the hell that was. So we shot this as the pilot. And I remember they sent it into True TV. They got notes back. And one of the notes was, we want to go with this style, with him having a team of investigators that he gets to talk to. And I think one of those, I think it came from John Crowley, was we like the dynamic between Jesse and Alex. They're like Mulder and Scully. There you go. Right. And I was like, and I remember uh, so clearly Frank Sinton calling me up. I had now moved on. I was now working at left, right. I was doing something else. And he said, I'm going to be totally transparent with you, Piper, because we've known each other for a while. Like this was the note we got. They think that you and Jesse are Mulder and Scully. So we need you to go. We're going to get a series order. We need you to be in it. And I was like, they weren't asking me to be the showrunner. They right. were just asking me to be in the show. And I was like, what? Like, I, I don't do that. I did that on the pilot just to prove out this. Like, I don't, I'm not on camera talent. Yeah. You know, as I said with Yuki Washington back in the day, like I was totally interested in just being behind the scenes. And he was like, listen, we want to deliver this for the network. What would it take? Oh my God. And I'm like, Frank, I really don't think there is something. He goes, give it the weekend, think about it, come back. So I thought about it over the weekend and I was like, well, if they paid me my showrunner rate for an X amount of weeks, even though I wasn't the showrunner, and they paid me a little additional like talent fee per episode, you know, I was just about to buy a house. I was, I was engaged. Like, I was like, I need some cash, like, just like anybody else. Who cares? Like, I didn't think anything of it. So then I shot... Also, also, also not, not to disparage, but at that time, (laughs) it's also true TV. So you're probably thinking, who's really going to see it? I didn't want to say that, but yeah. I mean, at the time, at the time. No one's going to see it. No one's going to see it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. But it wasn't like I had any secret appetite to be on camera. I never, ever did. So 
I made this ridiculous ask. I thought it was ridiculous, right? The amount of money that they were going to have to pay me. I told them they could have me from Memorial Day to Labor Day because, and Labor Day, I had now, I had decided I was going to now work for asylum full time and I was moving out to LA. Okay. So I figured that's like my heart out. Yep. So all of a sudden they come back and they go, done. I was like, what? And of course, just like any other TV production, June goes by, July goes by, we haven't shot a frame. I'm literally sitting in my house for two months doing nothing, collecting these checks, waiting, like calling Frank, like, hey, when are we going to, oh, we're, this got pushed and that got pushed and Jesse's availability is a problem. And I'm like, okay, you know that I have a heart out. Yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out. Blah, blah, blah. And then it isn't until August 11th that I get on a plane and go to Alaska to shoot the, the second episode with Jesse. And by the way, spending like seven hours in a car with Jesse in Alaska, you hear some amazing stories. I think I said maybe, I spoke for maybe five minutes of that seven hour ride. You just ask him like one question and he just goes really amazing guy. I gotta say I had a real, I had a blast working with him. And then of course we didn't get it done in time. So Steve being the hard headed guy said to Frank, like, yeah, no, I'll let you use Alex after, but you have to pay, you have to pay some ridiculous amount of money. Right. Because now Frank to was going to have to pay for me and he, he was going to have to pay it to asylum, not to me. Now, so, now Frank yeah. is paying asylum for access to me. For your we time. Finished yeah. That, yeah, we finished that series. They pick up season two and they come back and Steve's like, nope, enough. And they ended up casting a, another guy who kind of looks like me. Right? I, I don't think anyone even knew the difference. And they ended up doing however many series. Well, I didn't want to say anything, but one. I have that other guy that replaced you here joining the there Zoom. He here he is. No. Um, I, before we, before we get off of asylum, because obviously we've, mm -hmm. we've got to get the Fox and we've got to get the YouTube, I guess let's go here. So Jordan rides the bus, the yeah. 30 for 30 documentary. You got to work with Ron Shelton who directed yeah, that. Amazing. And Ron Shelton, amazing. like for people that don't know, you know, Ron Shelton without knowing Ron Shelton, Ron Shelton wrote Bull Durham. He wrote Tin Cup. He wrote White Man Can't Jump. And I'm like forgetting. And oh, he also wrote a cult classic favorite of mine the best of times with Robin Williams and Kurt yep. Russell. Amazing. Um, a lot of great stuff. And he's also gone on to yep. direct things. So that experience, who, who had the idea, who, who had the idea to like, like do a doc on when Jordan played baseball of all the ideas. Totally. I, not to, not to waste any time, but you got to go back a second because we did the very first 30 for 30 at Asylum, which was King's Ransom. It was oh, the very first one. There. I didn't know that was Pete the first Berg, one. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was the first one. Pete Berg was the director. Yep. And at the time, you know, 30 for 30 was really this premise of taking these 30 moments over the last 30 years in sports. And it didn't have to be like uh, the these biopics that all these sports documentaries had become. Like it all started back in 71 when he was born to a poor family. It wasn't that anymore. It was about find this moment and really do a deep dive into it. So, you know, at the time, I think ESPN was really looking for how do we get the best directors in the world involved in this project, right? For the for just the credibility of it all, right? And certainly Ron was on their short list. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, Steve and Jonathan at their best, you know, finding a way in to sit down with Ron and convincing him that this is the sort of thing they that um, he would want to do. And one of the very first ideas he threw out was Jordan's minor league baseball. Oh, like, so he, he had it ready. He was like, okay. Yeah, he had it ready. It was on a short list of things that ESPN was also kind of throwing out there. So I, I forget whether it was like on a list that we shared with him or whether he came up with it himself. But I remember him definitely circling it. Like, this is something I'm, I'm interested in. And when you think about the guy who did Bull Durham taking on this project, it's the perfect marriage. And what I thought was great about what 
Ron and the team decided to do was like, we're just going to make it about just this. We're not going to get lost in, in Michael's basketball career before or his basketball career after. We're going to make it about just this. But what we thought was an important part of that story was why did he do this? And at yeah. the time, there was a lot of theories around it. And many of them had to do with the death of his father. Yeah. Right. And that was a topic that really even to today, to a certain extent, he's unwilling to talk about. You rise up the ranks at Asylum. Uh, and how does the Fox job get presented to you? What yeah. makes you want to go be a broadcast buyer? So the last year I was at Asylum was 2013, and we were really prepping for a sale, right? That was the, the okay. sweet spot where a lot of kind of mid-sized production companies or even larger production companies were selling. And so a lot of the conversations we were having at that point and when I say we, I really mean Stephen Jonathan and Eric Johnson, who was involved, but was about like EBITDA, right? And about revenues and things like that, and less about the creative. I knew that the asylum that I had worked for for the last four years full time and for the last decade as a kind of freelancer was changing, right? It was very clear that it was changing. And um, so I had said to Stephen Jonathan, like, hey, when the sale gets finalized, maybe it's time for me to go do something else. And so I kind of slowly put my the word out that I might be looking for something else. And a headhunter reached out to me cold. Like I had never spoken to this person before. And they had said, um, did I want to meet with Simon Andre at Fox? Simon. Had oh my God. I forgot. I forgot it was under Simon's administration. You, you, you went, yeah. through, you went through three administrations. Yeah, uh, a lot of regime changes while I was there. But <laughs> Darnell had just left for Warner. He had yep. taken everybody with him except for Amy Cohen, who stayed behind. Um, and so basically, Simon and Amy were running Fox Alternative at the time. Simon was staffing up. I was actually down the road on another job. I, I mean, to the point where we were like negotiating my parking space on the other job. Like I thought I was taking that job. And I said that to the headhunter. I was like, well, I'm kind of down the road. And she said, well, why don't you just meet with Simon? What's the worst thing that can happen? So I went in to meet with Simon. Uh, I didn't even meet in his office because they were still like pulling all of Mike's stuff out of his office. So it was just like two. And that's a lot of shows. stuff. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. 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 It, it was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who's been in that office knows it takes a second. They're moving, um, they're moving the grand piano out of his office. Yeah. <laughs> the carpet, everything. Yeah. yeah. So it was like two folding chairs in the office next door. And we ended up talking for like 90 minutes. And I didn't make any of the mistakes that I made with um with David Michaels years before, because to your point, like I told him all the things I didn't know. Because here I was at a broadcast network on the buying side. Those were two things I didn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. I had only made one pilot for ABC back in 2006 that didn't go. That's the only broadcast show that I had ever worked on. Um, and I didn't know anything about the buying side. Yeah. So I was just very honest. Like, this is what I've done. I've worked in sports. I've worked in Olympics. I've worked in news from my time at ABC News. Worked in entertainment. I've worked on small shows, big shows, female skewing, male skewing. Like, this is who I am. But, you know all assuming that it was going to go to somebody who had some buying experience. Like that's who should get those jobs. And the next day I got a call from the headhunter. He loves you and he wants to make you an offer. And I was like, wait a minute. Uh, what am I supposed to do now? Cause I had this other job offer that I had kind of like mentally decided I was going to be taking, but how often do you get 
offered a buying side job when you've never been on that side, especially at a broadcast network, especially when you're kind of in this middle of this reboot. You know, Simon had just started too, so you would be a part of the team kind of at its genesis. And this is uh, why you this is why you always take the meeting. That's the advice. Exactly right. Exactly take, right. That's take it. the meeting. Yep. That's right. And um, and so I said, I, I think I have to do this. Um, I think financially it was even a worse deal for me than if I had taken the other job. But oh, really? I just felt like yeah, I, I do because it's not like the networks were paying extra, you know, a lot at the time. I, I, I was able to get, a, I think, a pretty good deal out of it, but it wasn't. I think the other deal was a little sweeter in that there was upside because I was working at a production company, and if we had sold some shows, I would have ended up making a so lot it was, more. The other, the other job was a seller's job. So your other job was a seller's job again. Yeah, right. well, I so was you're thinking, overseeing. Right. So you're thinking, do I stay on the hamster wheel and keep yep. trying to wheel and deal and sell and pitch, or can I, for once, actually be the person hearing the pitches? Uh, right. And maybe I make a little bit less, but maybe I'll stress a little less. Little do you know, the stress. And well, my feeling at the time, Jimmy, was like, at the very least, I do this job for two or three years and my Rolodex looks completely different than it does now. Exactly. Because right. remember, when, when you have your head down at Asylum, you barely even know the other sellers, let alone the buyer. Like, you know, you don't yeah. really, you're just working on these shows. You're just grinding on these shows. And remember, Jonathan Koch was really running you know, development at Asylum and he was pitching the shows with Steve. So I wasn't even in some of those rooms. So oh, it that's was, interesting. You were, you were not in the front of the house all experience. the time. You, you weren't in the yeah, front of the always. house. Yeah, not always. I mean, occasionally I was there, Yeah. but really I was the guy who, who got the shows got handed over to, or the network relationship got, got handed over to after the show was sold. Yeah. Right. More than, than the pitch. Um, and so I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And when I took the job, I mean, I really walked into that job, started January uh, of 2014, I guess it was. And I, I literally had no idea what I was doing. I felt incredibly insecure about it. Honestly, insecure because I was like so worried that I was a huge fraud and that everyone was going to know it like pretty early. I remember meeting with an agent for lunch, like a couple weeks after I'd started, you know, everyone wants to sit you down and feel you out a little bit. Yeah. And the agent said to me like very, like we had, I, I barely had put the napkin on my lap. And he was like, you know, I had to Google you. I'd never heard your name before. And I'm like, yep. I'm sure everyone's feeling that way, but here I was in the job. So I actually did the job incredibly poorly for a long time because I was so, I was working so hard to try to prove to everybody that I was smart and that I was worthy. And I knew what I was doing that I was actually, of course, trying way too hard. But, you know, I think what you struck on there is when you're at a production company, but you're the salesperson, you have a much better understanding of what that network process is of hearing pitches, having those conversations on making an offer, because that's what you're living in every day. You're just living it on the other side. When you are an executing showrunner type production person like you were at Asylum, you weren't in the sales conversations so much with, with network counterparts. You were just in the trenches in production, right? So you didn't that's know right. about like the politics and the gamesmanship that goes into all no. that stuff. That makes sense. I was so adjacent to it. Yeah, I was adjacent to it. So I, yeah. I I would hear Steve and Jonathan having these conversations and I was in the occasional pitch. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I was more of a current executive than I was a development right. executive at that time, right? Yeah. Jonathan and some of our development executives would come up with the ideas and then they would basically pitch them to me and I would 
poke holes in them or if we needed to do a sizzle tape or a pilot, I would go produce it. But I wasn't just sitting there trying to brainstorm ideas. I had too many other responsibilities like actually running alternative at the time. And so Jonathan was driving a lot of that. And you're absolutely right. I did not have the POV on the industry. I didn't know all the other players. I didn't know exactly how the ebb and flow worked. So it was a real wake up call. But what an amazing experience. Like it changed my life to get this job. Um, and to work with the different regimes that I worked with there because they were all so very different. Right. And I was able to learn from each one of them. Right. Because you have Simon and then is it is it after Simon, it's Corey? Yep. Right? And then and then yep. and then Rob Wade comes in after a while, correct? Correct, correct. That so was- the first year, Simon, Simon's there for a year that I'm there. And then he leaves and is replaced by Corey. Right. And the day that Corey was announced was the day my, my youngest daughter was born. And I remember I, I, I was in the hospital. My wife was about to have our second and there was this meeting that was put on the books and there had been some rumblings as to what was going on. And when I saw this meeting come on the books, I knew something was going weird. And I remember calling Lisa Levinson and being like, is this what I think it is? And she's like, I think it is. And I went to my wife and I said, I think I need to go into the office. And she's like, we're having the baby today. And I'm like, I I think I just need to go in the office. The C-section isn't until later this afternoon. Like, is it okay if I go to this 1030 meeting? I mean, my wife's a saint. So she's like, yes. So I go into this 1030 meeting straight from the hospital. Simon tells us he's leaving. He walks out of the room. David Madden, the president of Fox at the time, walks in, tells us, um, you know, this is a hard day, but Corey Henson's going to come on. She's going to run alternative, blah, blah, blah. By the time we walk out, this was the meeting happened in Lisa Levinson's office. By the time we walk out of Lisa's office, Simon has already moved out of his office. Like all this stuff's gone. It's amazing. I mean, he didn't have a lot of stuff, but he took it all. He's gone. Right. Like a ghost. And we are all looking at each other like, well, what do we do now? Now? I don't know Corey. Never met her. I think she had pitched to me a couple times, but I did not have any personal relationship with her. Lisa knew her uh, a lot better than I did. Um, They went back. And so Lisa was telling me great things about Corey, but I didn't know her. So I get in my car to drive back to the hospital thinking to myself, we're about to have our second child and I'm about to get fired. Right. Because if you're going to come in, you want to bring in some of your own people. I'm not her people. She's not going to replace Lisa. So she's going to, I'm gone. And I remember she called me on my cell phone and was like, Hey, I hear you're on the way back to the hospital. And she was so nice and like so sweet. And I was like, maybe she's not going to fire me. I don't know. Like, but for the first like three months she was there again, I had gotten back into like, Oh, I got to prove myself mode. And then she had like an amazing meeting with me that really changed my whole life as a buyer, maybe my whole life period. She called me into her office, calls me into her office, close, close the door. And I'm thinking up, this is it. This is where I get fired. And she, she sits me down on the couch and she goes, Alex, I really like you. And I think you're really smart, but I think you got to stop trying to prove to people how smart you are. And I was like, what? And she was like, I think you sit there and you give tough notes and you stand up for things. And I love your passion, but I think you got to remember that this is all about relationships. It's all about the long haul. Like, so making that one note on that one show isn't as important as building that relationship with that producer for the future shows. And she, she told me that she had been given this piece of advice of like, before you write down that note, think to yourself, is that note going to change the rating at all? And if the answer is no, don't give it. And, and she, but she was basically saying, stop trying so hard, be yourself. I like you. I trust you. You're smart. You don't have to prove it all the time. Like, 
and, and, and you're being too harsh in our pitches. People right. are calling me after the pitches, wondering why you just shredded their, their, their pitch. And I thought that that was what I was supposed to do because yeah. I was like a showrunner. Like, and I was so used to working at the production company and having the development team pitch me their shows and me having to poke holes in it, that that's what I would do when people like you would walk in and pitch me shows. I'd be like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? What about this? And they'd be like, who the fuck is this guy? But how, like, gener- how generous is that of her? Oh my like, God. Like she doesn't have to do that. Like if she didn't nope. like you, she could have just let you like self-destruct, yep. right? Yep. And and write your own and ticket gotten, out gotten rid of me and no one would have thought twice about it. No. The fact that she was able to both art, to make me feel safe in that moment, right. to articulate what was wrong and to allow me to have the space to figure it out and solve it is why I will always owe her forever. Um, and it, it changed my whole path as an executive and, and frankly, just as like a leader. Like when I think about what I'm doing now, I often think back to that moment because I think about how she was willing, she was able to put me at ease where she was willing to take a risk on me. And oftentimes that's where you see the most growth. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I, I actually recall when I worked with Corey for like the two weeks we crossed over at Electus, she told me the same thing. She was like, as a buyer, when I was at ABC, I would say, look, is this note going to change the rating? No, then I'm not giving it. I, and that always, it's amazing. Like that stuck with me just the same as it stuck with you. Um, hold on, we got, we got to get going though. Cause I know I can't keep you. Go, 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 it's, please. It's Friday fun day over no, you, at the Piper House. Time. So you spend how many years at Fox? I spent five and a half years. All right. So I remember when this YouTube job, like I, I remember hearing around town that this YouTube job might be, might be open. Right. And I think the word had been out there. This was a really sought after big opportunity for someone to get this buying job. And I remember hearing you got the job and thinking, well, that's a great, that's a why great the job. hell did he get the job? No, I remember thinking this is like a great step up for Alex. You were VP at Fox, right? Yep. VP of Fox. And now you're the head of unscripted for mm-hmm. YouTube unscripted originals. And I remember thinking like, these are the jobs anybody wants now on the buyer side. Like as all the emerging, emerging platforms were rising over the last few years, I remember thinking YouTube of all of them has more potential to change the media landscape than any other platform because of mm-hmm. the literal millions of, of creators that are out there that they can work with and pluck. And, and you and I got to connect um, several weeks ago. Like we kind of had like a state of the state that you and your team were good enough to give my team. And I just thought it was fascinating when you just went through what the onboarding process was like for you coming to YouTube and kind of what oh you God. had your eyes open to in terms of like what you guys can harness and what the future of media is. So that's kind of your setup to like give that, give that kind of spiel that you give people because I thought it was kind of, <laughs> I thought it was like, okay, not only does this sound like a great job and a great opportunity for content, but it just sounds like the future of media as, as we know. Well, first of all, congratulations to you on defying gravity, which, which you did Thanks. for YouTube originals and, you know, critics choice nomination, right. And, and PGA the, awards. And yeah, we got sports Emmys on Tuesday, man. I mean, great job by you and your team. We loved working with you guys on that. Shout out to the learning and impact team and Nadine and everybody who worked with you on that. Um, Listen, I I didn't know what I was getting into when I took the YouTube job. You know, I, I, I met with Suzanne in December of that year and she, they had just kind of pivoted away from YouTube originals, really just making projects for the, for the SVOD, for the subscription service, YouTube Red, YouTube Premium, right? To, okay, all of the YouTube Originals content is going to sit in front of the paywall. Well, when you say that to me, I get really excited. 
because right. there's 2 billion, billion with a B, unique users of YouTube every month. 2 billion unique users globally. It's just insane. So here we are, like whatever show I had done at Fox, I thought when I got to the broadcast network, it was like at the big leads, right? You know, you work in cable, you get to the broadcast show, it feels like you've gotten to the big leagues because you're getting these big, broad audiences. And it was. And it was. And it was. It was. It was. It was, but I mean, like Mass Singer had just launched it around that time and it was a huge, massive hit right away, right? And it was getting what, 10 million viewers a week? Right. You know, 9 million viewers a week. And here now I was looking at these YouTube numbers and some of these creators were getting 50 million views right. on their shows globally right away. And I'm like, whoa, this is like a totally different league that we're walking into. And the issue with it is is really in some ways search and discovery, right? Because YouTube is so big, the scale is so massive. And I think I said this to you the other day, it's like, you know, you do a show for YouTube originals and it's like pouring a can of soda into the ocean, right? It can get washed <laughs> away because there's like 4 million new hours of, of user generated footage that's getting put on YouTube like every couple of weeks. So it's, it's just, it's an insane task. So you have to kind of be disciplined about what it is that you are looking for because YouTube is so huge and the people who are coming to use YouTube are coming for so many different reasons. Right. So how do you actually create something that feels elevated from the amazing content that these creators are already doing for their channels, right? These, these creators are really just mini media moguls. I mean, they have created their own networks. Their channels are a little mini network. And so when they get to 10, 20, 50 million subscribers, they did that themselves. They produced the shows themselves. They came up with the ideas themselves. They edited themselves. They promoted it themselves. I mean, they are their own little mini network. And so like, how do you work with them in a way where you can help offer them some value? I mean, for a while it took, I couldn't quite figure out like what value are we offering other than deficit financing these shows. Cause by the way, a lot of the top creators don't even need us to do that. They're making so much money on their channel. They don't, they don't need it. Um, so it, it was really interesting to try and figure out like, how can we tap into this demo? How can we add something? And it really comes down to how can we work with these creators in a way where we can allow them to access the passion projects that they would otherwise have not been able to pull off because they either don't have the time to do it, they don't have the resource to do it, they don't have the know-how, whatever that is. How can we allow them to unlock something that they might not be able to um, unlock themselves? And, you know, I, I, I've likened uh, YouTube to like the city of Manhattan before, right? You drop me in, in Midtown and I go 20 blocks north or 20 blocks south, five blocks east, five blocks west. You're in a different neighborhood and each one of those neighborhoods looks different. Um, and everything about them is different. Socioeconomics, interests, all that sort of stuff. And in a lot of ways, that's what YouTube is, right? Some people are just coming for beauty right. or gaming or music or their favorite vlogger or whatever it is. And they're not coming for anything else. And so in a lot of ways, YouTube originals, what we are is we're, we're like the, um, the transportation. So we're the subway system, right. That connects those neighborhoods together. How do we get you to collaborate with different creators than you would have? How do we tie two audiences together that might not know of each other? Because while I and my team know about a lot of the biggest creators, you may only know about beauty creators because that's what you come here for. But if you got to know about Mr. Beast, or if you got to know about all these other creators, you might be interested in staying longer. Dude, it's, I mean, when you think about, you see the numbers, right? You see yeah. the numbers that a YouTube creator generates doing something self-produced in their, in their pajamas. 
and it's getting <laughs> bigger numbers than the biggest show on linear television, you really start to think and, about- And it's not even close. It's not even close. Not even close. With you. Yeah. And, you start, and you start to think about, okay, so this generation of kids, you know, we have young kids, generation of kids, like tweens, that grow up viewing their favorite YouTube creators and YouTube channels as their channels. Absolutely right. When those 12-year-olds become 32-year-olds and are at the heart of the demo that advertisers yep. care about, what does yep. that mean for traditional media? Because how does a kid that grows up, because when we were growing up, we thought there was premium content was like, okay, broadcast television is like the thing. And then cable television is like reruns of old movies and like cheaper shows, right? So yep. we saw yep. that there was like a divide of like the, pre and then more, more recently, the, the, the OTT platforms were like the premium and then broadcast is like yep. broad family, you know, far reaching, yep. you know, red state stuff. And then like cables, like very niche. The younger audience coming up, like those tweens and whatnot, they don't de decipher or discriminate like one platform being any more premium than their favorite YouTube creator unboxing something. I came from broadcast. And so I have a soft spot in my heart for broadcast. And I made cable shows for a long time. And so I have a soft spot there. But I think it's increasingly difficult to find a path forward for them because I think they're a little bit unwilling to let go of the audience they have to try and get the audience that they want. Right. You know, you watch a lot of these shows that have launched in the last week, for instance, right? A lot of our our unscripted broadcast friends are launching their summer programming, right? Yeah. And so you see like a big, great show like MasterChef, right? Produced by great producers and all of that, like getting a 0.6 and winning its night and getting 2 million total viewers, yeah. right? On a 0.6, like that's tough. That's tough, right? And that's the biggest show of Wednesday night is getting a 0.6 and getting only 2 million total viewers. 2 million total views on a video for us would be a huge disappointment, right? But I think the part of it is I look at what's happening in broadcast and a lot of the shows look the same. There's a very specific template that's happening in broadcast. And I was a part of some of that. You know, I, I helped to make some of those shows, right? But it's shiny floor, it's competition elimination. We're gonna choose from these 10 production companies and these eight showrunners. And this is who's gonna design the set and here's who's gonna be our lighting designer. And they all start to look the same and they're only playing to an audience of like 50 year olds and 60 year olds right. who are so used to watching these shows that they just they, they they keep that routine up i think the younger audience sees right through all of that because there's a lack of authenticity in those shows they're so used to social media now not just youtube any right. form of social media and being able to have this direct to consumer relationship right. with their favorite creators that when they see those same pieces of talent on another show but it feels too formulaic and it feels too produced they just reject right. it was yeah. not interested in it. And I actually think that Mass Singer had an opportunity to really reset all of that because it proved that when you do something that looks totally different, that feels totally different, people could, it could spark people. The problem is, is that instead of following that up with more things that felt different, we just started making more shows that look like Mass Singer.
Yeah. Right. So now you're in this carbon copy mode where you're just seeing copy of a copy of a copy. And, and, and it's, it's, it's these it's shiny also- floor shows and broadcast. And it's these docu follows in, in cable where everything that we do at YouTube, what they're doing at TikTok and Facebook, whatever, every one of the shows is totally different. There is no format. I don't care what the duration is. I don't care. You know, it, it, the only thing that needs to be in the DNA of the show is authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. And look, and I think a lot of it also is you talked about, you know, traditional networks trying to get that, that audience they really want. Um, but does that younger audience want them? Because I think we see the power of branding. We see it with Netflix all the time. Like Shit's Creek is a Canadian comedy that's on pop TV. Right. Then yep. once it gets on Netflix, all of a sudden it takes off. Breaking bad is this obscure show on AMC, but once it gets on Netflix, it takes mm-hmm. off um, mm-hmm. alone. Like, I can't tell you how many friends of mine have like hit me up of like this cool show show alone that's on Netflix, not even realizing that that show has been on History Channel for like years. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's a History Channel show. Right. And they don't they don't know. They don't know and they don't care. That's the point. The point is they don't care. Like we we did Cobra Kai. I mean, before I got there. Oh, right. Great example. uh, Great example. and, And now it's on Netflix and everyone's like acting as if they just heard it. So it's not just broadcasters or cable that that's happening to, yeah. right? It even happens in streaming. But the point is the audience doesn't care where it came from. They just want to be able to access it. You know, somebody said to me the other day that when you talked about a creator five years ago, you were really talking about a YouTuber, right? That was the place that these creators were. They were making it, they were putting it on their channel. That's not the case anymore, right? A cre- so YouTube used to be the sun and the creators would orbit around YouTube, right? right. Now the creator is the sun. Yep. And all of the different platforms orbit around that creator. So these these creators are platform agnostic. They don't care. They're putting stuff on YouTube. They're putting stuff on TikTok. They're putting stuff on IG. They've got a channel here. Like they're doing something for broadcast as a guest host. Like they'll, they don't care. They're just getting their content out there. And it's a huge, huge win for them. And it's an interesting battle because here, when you compare what we're doing at YouTube to broadcast or cable, we look like we're young and on top of it and doing that. But then there are, there are, platforms like TikTok that are undercutting us, right? We sit here and stress about, are we losing Gen Z? Cause we're only, we're now 15 years old. Are we losing Gen Z to, to say TikTok, you know, because does TikTok, are they feeling like that's where pop culture is happening? Even though most people would think that YouTube is where pop culture is happening. If you're living in a broadcasting cable space. So there's always going to be something, is, there's always, always going to be something new. And it's funny, like, and I hope this isn't like my get off my lawn old man perspective, <laughs> but when I, I had the TikTok stuff, like slide into my, my, uh, my Insta feed, like all these TikTok videos will slide in. It keeps me up at night knowing that the generation that has been brought up on TikTok acting is one day going to be the same generation that votes on Academy Awards. <laughs> yeah, like, but I tell you some what, of the TikTok, I think we all know the, the, the Academy Awards is going to look Academy Awards is going to look so different in five or 10 years. And we know know. it, right? You can see it even just through this last year, all of these award shows are being rejected because people just aren't that, that that's not what they, they don't think about it anymore. Right. So it's just so funny. Like my, back when I was growing up and I'm older, but, but back when I was growing up, it was, you know, my parents watched NBC on Mondays for the comedy and ABC for the dramas on Tuesday. And they would just leave it on. Right. Yeah. And then cable came about and you had the remote control so you could kind of channel surf. Right. So you had more options. Well, now think about the options. Like somebody I was on a panel a couple of weeks ago where they were asking, like, how do you deal with Gen Z and their and their short attention spans? And I said, well, 
do we know that they have short attention spans or is it just that they have better options? Right. Like it, I didn't want to have to sit there and watch that syndicated repeat at 530 at night, but it was either that or the local news. So I would watch it. Right. You know, that was my only option. So of course I sat there and watched it and sat through commercial breaks and did it willingly. But if I had op- better options back then, I would have taken them. And certainly this new generation has a lot better options. And each one of these platforms, whether you be an SVOD, an AVOD, whatever, we all have to compete for that attention. Dude, thanks for doing this, man. You're, of course. Dude, this was great. You took me through the whole Rolodex of, of people along <laughs> your career stop. This was awesome, man. I appreciate you making time. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome, dude. Have a good weekend. You too, buddy. Take care. Thanks for doing this. Bye. Bye.